we have been studying what we call eschatology, the doctrine of the last days, and uh, we've seen so far that this doctrine doesn't teach just about things that are so far in the future, but really that's the area of theology that starts talking about, the start, uh, that encompasses everything that happens from the moment you and I die to forever. So it's a large area of study. And uh, we have, we've looked at what happens at death, we've looked at hell, we've looked at heaven, we've looked at how people exist between the moment of their death and the moment of the resurrection. And uh, we uh, have then started looking at the church and Israel as it relates to their connection and as it relates to these ideas, these teachings of uh, things that are future to us and the fulfillment of prophecy. And the reason why we're spending so much time on this is our third lesson on this topic, the nature and identity of the church. The reason we're spending so much time is that it it is of the utmost importance to know what the church is and how it relates to Israel in figuring out how prophecies from the Old and New Testaments uh, will be fulfilled in the time future to us. We've seen that there are several ways to look at the identity of the church. The two primary one is that the church and Israel are completely different institutions, that they, they do not have anything in common with one another, and that God has a plan for Israel as an ethnic people and a plan for church as a, as a spiritual people. And we saw that all falls under this uh, theology called dispensationalism, and that creates this sharp distinction between uh, the church and Israel. And we saw that that is historically a minority position, even though today the United States may be the majority position. Historically, that's not the case. It's, it's the, the, uh, this idea that there's this sharp distinction between the church and Israel is the new kid on the block. It's about 120, 150 years old, and it was uh, developed in England, uh, first formulated really in England by a man the name of Darby, last name Darby. But it was popularized in the United States, became famous and popular and desirable in the United States, especially in the late 1800s in the prophecy conference movement. And uh, that became uh, so strong, so powerful, so ingrained in American culture that has actually driven American foreign policy. Uh, the... Uh, uh, it is my belief that current American policy towards Israel is primarily driven by this idea of dispensationalism. And we're not going to discuss that in Sunday school. We can talk about it some other time in, uh, in, in private. But we also saw that that is as popular, popular as it is and as being something that probably most of you have grown up with, if you went to Baptist or non-denominational churches, it's not what the Bible teaches. It's actually a contrary to the Bible teaches. It's interesting that historically, it's interesting how we start accepting things as part of within the boundaries of orthodoxy. But historically, this idea that there was a sharp distinction between Israel and the church was considered a heresy. And people were kicked out of the church for believing that sort of thing. So it's funny how we've accepted those uh, ideas. So we, so far, have seen several things in this 
particular uh, subdivision of our study. We've seen that the word church is used in several ways in the Bible. It's difficult to find one, one overarching meaning for the word church, and we, we took a look at how all those things are. We also saw that the argument that the, word, the English word church is not used in the Old Testament in our Bibles, uh, therefore the church wasn't there. It's not an actual intelligent argument based on linguistics and just how the Bible is written. The, we saw the concept of the church is there throughout the, the Old Testament. And we saw that God established his church when he entered into a covenant with Abraham. And that was the last thing we saw. And, and, and remember, I used the Belgic Confession as a quick shortcut to that definition. And I told you the Belgic Confession is accepted by every Reformed body that believes in the Bible in the world. So I didn't take time to prove from the Scriptures that those things are true. I just thought that the weight of the church's opinion about it would be enough. And uh, maybe in the future, I'll, I'll show that it is true that the Bible teaches that in order for you to have a true church, you have to have the preaching of the Word of God, the right observation of the sacraments, and the, the, the practice of church discipline. Those three elements is what constitute a church. So the logic was, okay, let's look in the Bible. It's the first time we find these three elements present, and that is in the covenant with, with Abraham. And then... We also saw that the church is united through all the different administrations of the covenant of Ab- with Abraham. So Moses comes along, and God answers in a covenant with Moses on behalf of Israel. And that covenant is a further development of that Abrahamic covenant. And then David comes along, and uh, God answers into a covenant with David. And that's a further development of the covenant with Abraham. And then... Christ comes along and he inaugurates the new covenant. And that, again, is a further development of that original covenant with David, in which God promises to be a God to us and that he's going, we are going to be his people, which is the unifying message of the Bible, the Emmanuel principle of God with us. That's really the bottom line. That's the primary promise that God makes through all his covenants, that uh, he's going to be our God and that and we are going to be uh, his people. Any questions about the review part? Andrew? So was there no church between Adam and, and Abraham? There's no visible church between Adam and Abraham. They're, they're believers. Uh, now, the earliest believer we have for sure is Abel, because it's recorded in, the, in Hebrews 11 that he had faith. Uh, there's good, good evidence, uh, good reasons to think of Adam and Eve, uh, uh, or also redeemed. You know, there, there's a, the making of coverings for them out of animals and so on. But, uh, so there, people start calling the name of the Lord in Genesis 4. But as far as an organized people of God that we call the church, it's, that's with the covenant with Abraham. Any other questions? Adam. Can you quickly restate those three elements? No. <laughs> yes. So it is the true, it, the faithful preaching of the word of God it is the rightful administration of the sacraments and the practice of church discipline. Those that have been considered historically as three elements. When you find that, you find the true church of Jesus Christ. Okay? Uh, there's a, a Calvin um, disagreed with that. In, 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 he nuanced his view of the church in which he said that the practice of church discipline is not of the essence of the church. The preaching and sacraments are of the essence. The church discipline is of the well-being of the church. In order for the church to stay healthy, you have to have church discipline. 
but you end up at the same place because if, if, the church, if that's part of the well-being is not present, what's going to happen if the thing that keeps the church healthy is not there, the church is going to die. So it's, uh, how does the saying go? A distinction without a difference? Is that how people say sometimes? At the end, it is the same thing. Or right, any other questions about the review before we continue? All right. I'm going to start today by looking at the, that, the fact that the Abrahamic covenant results in one people of God, commonly called Israel in the Old Testament, and the church in the New Testament. And then our dispensational brothers or our non-dispensational Baptist brothers are going to say, Oh, you're going to replace Israel with the church. You believe in replacement theology. No. It's the same entity, so nothing's being replaced. We're not saying that God unplugged this and plugged something else. No, it's the same entity. So there's no replacement. It's the same bride of Christ from beginning to end. God, through Christ, is not a bigamist. He didn't have a couple of wives. Uh, is one wife, one bride throughout the history of redemption. And uh, actually, we're going to anchor that in one particular passage. If you grab our Bible and go to... Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to show to you from here that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you become a citizen of the Israel of God. And it, now you might say, oh, but in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel and the religious people of Israel are the same in one. That if you are a member of the nation of Israel, you are a member of the church of Israel. And that's not true. We can think of examples of people who are national Israelites who are not members of the church of Israel. Can you think of, of any, anybody like that? Well, we saw, yes, we saw was circumcised and everything, and he was not part of the church. But even more of a categories of people, not just even the individual, but there are categories of people who were passport-carrying citizens of Israel, but they were not members of the church of Israel. Yes? No, they were members. They were actually the religious leaders. Lepers. Lepers were citizens of Israel, but they were not members of the Church of Israel. They are forbidden from being members of the Church of Israel. So we, let's be careful that even though there's a lot of overlap, the nation of Israel and the Church of Israel are not the, the exact same thing in the Old Testament. But what I want us to see here in Ephesians to begin with is that one cannot be a Christian if one is not part of Israel. How does that hit you? One cannot be a Christian if one is not part of Israel. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh. So you once were Gentiles in the flesh. That's who, that's who you were. Who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. That at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
And then drop to verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Look at the next few words. But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, what, it mean, what does it mean to be a foreigner to Israel? And I don't mean this, you know, oh, he wasn't born. What are the consequences? What, what would somebody who was not part of Israel in the Old Testament be an experience as far as relationship with God? Well, Israel is the place where people met with God. You really didn't meet in a corporate visible way with God outside of Israel. It, Israel is the place where the word of God was available. The New Testament, Romans 3 tells us that, that Israel was the stewards of the oracle of God. God spoke to the nations and, and if, if all, to the nation of Israel. If other people wanted to hear from God, they were to come to. So to be foreigner, to be outside is to not have these benefits to you. Uh, Israel was also the place where ordinances, all, all the ordinances and all the means of grace were available. Now, you're actually, you couldn't just do sacrifices anywhere you wanted. They had to be on the temple or the tabernacle. So you can't really meet with God in that way anywhere else. Israel was the object of the promises of God's covenants. So if you want to be part of that covenant, so you have to be in Israel. If you're not in 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 connection with Israel, then you're not part of any of that. Uh, Israel is united with God. So to not be part of Israel is to not be united with God. Um, to be part of Israel meant being chosen by God, and it meant you had the hope of the promised Messiah. So to be foreigner to Israel means that you don't have any of these things. None of these things are ours or yours. And that's exactly the picture that Paul is painting of those who are outside of Christ in Ephesians chapter 2. So you can see here that Paul equates the, the impact of being outside of Christ is the same impact of being outside of Israel. You don't have these benefits. You don't have these. Uh, the, the grace of God is not available to you in the way that is uh, when you are a citizen of Israel. Uh, the Ephesian church the Ephesian Christians, being mostly Gentiles, had experienced the taunting and putting down from the Jews. That's, that's, Paul's combating that too. Uh, you're not a real child of God. You're not circumcised, the, the, the Jews would, would tell them. And Paul then makes a, big of a, 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 a bit of a dig on them when he says that they are circumcised only in the flesh by hands instead of having hearts circumcised by the Spirit. That true citizens of Israel actually have their hearts circumcised by the Spirit of God. And Paul tells the Ephesians here that they are more, they are more citizens of, of Israel than those circumcised in the flesh. Because the blood of Christ is upon them. He said, if you look at verse 3, Paul says that there. And the Ephesians and us, as the Ephesians are the representative Christians, so the Ephesians and us, were indeed once strangers to Israel, and that meant several things. It meant that they were uh, separated from the Messiah. See that in verse 12. Now, Paul uses here 
If you look at uh, verse 12 of chapter 2, Paul says that, all th- uh, that at that time you were without Christ. And notice that uh, he just says Christ by itself, which is the way that Paul refers to the title of Messiah, not to the, the name, because later on Christ became just another name for in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. But here Paul says that at one point you are not in the Messiah. You're not part of the anointed one. That's who we were. And then he continues, and he says that they were not part of the citizenship of Israel. Again, in verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise. Uh, and ver- again, as verse 12 continues, says, having no hope and without God in the world, so that's who the Ephesians were. All these things were true of the Ephesians before they came to faith in Christ. That's, that's who they were. But, we have this but in verse 13 that, that now denies everything that went before. But when they came to Christ, to the blood of Christ, we are no longer a foreigner, but a full citizen of Israel with all the rights and benefits and, and duties that go along with that. In verse 13, Paul says, but now, so this is who we were, but now, which means that that's not who you are anymore. There's, there's a difference, a change here. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Near to what? To what he said in verse 12, the commonwealth of Israel. You've been made part of the commonwealth. I remember arguing with somebody uh, at one point, and she insisted, well, it just says near. It doesn't, says, doesn't say part of Israel. It just brought near to Israel, and you get some benefits of being near to Israel. And you, you I mean, you could stretch verse 13 to say that. It, it would still be a stretch. But the problem is that verse 19 says something different. Look, verse 19 says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but what? Of fellow citizens. Of what? Well, the only commonwealth mentioned in the whole passage is Israel. So when Paul says you're brought near, it doesn't mean that you're just standing outside the camp. Oh, look, wow, that's so nice what they have in there. No, you're brought into citizenship, into membership, into the people, people of God. So through faith in Christ, you and I are no longer alienated from the citizenship of Israel. We're no longer strangers or outsiders to the covenant of promises. Uh, and that's, that's who we are. And Paul, in a different place, uses the same idea, though as a different imagery, where here he uses the imagery of citizenship. In Romans 11, he uses the imagery of a tree. And what does he say about you and I as we come to faith in Jesus Christ? Does he say that, and, Christ, and God then planted this other tree... And that's who you are. You're part of this other tree that has roots in the New Testament. And this tree is growing here. And the other tree that was Israel is now being shriveled up and disappearing. No. He says that when you come to Christ, you're grafted into the same olive tree. Not a new olive tree. The same olive tree. And as you read the argument of chapter 11, he says that, that the roots of that olive tree is the promises made to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant. That's where the tree sprout up. And we are grafted, not into a completely separate new tree, but the very same tree as Old Testament 
Israel. So when what people, some people call the, the church age began, it wasn't that God was doing a new program or something that uh, was hidden before. No, he's continued the same program with some changes, but the same body, the same program, the same tree as he had going on through the whole um, Old Testament, starting with Abraham himself. And remember, Abraham was not a Jew. That's something that we forget. Abraham was a Gentile. And the history of Israel starts with a Gentile being brought to faith. In, and Jesus says, brought to faith in Jesus Christ, because Jesus says, Abraham knew of me and rejoiced, knew of my day and rejoiced in it. Romans 4, Paul says that the gospel that's being preached to us was also preached to Abraham, and he believed in it. Any questions before we continue? Or is this so confusing that there's not even a <laughs> viable thought being formed? Okay, we'll continue uh, then. So, if all this is true then, through faith in Christ, then you are brought near to Israel and become citizens of Israel. And that has been always what made somebody part of the true Israel of God. God has always been after that, and, and, and those have always been His people who have their hearts circumcised. Even way back in Deuteronomy, where... They're about to enter the promised land, and God is reminding them of all the things and all the, the, the promises and curses and blessings and conditions of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. He says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, of Moses speaking on behalf of God, he says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. That has always been the goal. Circumcised hearts so that one is part of the true Israel of God. It is, and on a practical level here, as we look at Ephesians 2, it is amazing to me, it amazes me how Paul speaks of no longer being separated from God by being united to a people. Look at verse 13 again. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. says, you are now brought in fellowship with God by being united to a, to a people. Theologically, each one of us is redeemed, no, is, is born again individually. Every one of us comes to faith in Christ individually, and that's your personal individual faith that causes God to declare you righteous before God, before Him, and sees you as perfect. All that having been said, that process does not happen in a vacuum. It happens in the midst of a people. We're brought to God in order to be part of a people. So as we look at this, that's how God has always dealt with His people, each individual being brought into a body, not being saved to be by himself or by herself. Then it's important that we don't isolate ourselves from the people of God. A big part of God's plan of redemption was to make you part of a people, to make you a part of a community, make you part of a family, as he mentions in verse 19. That, so God is not just after people getting saved. No, that, that's, not what the, that's not what the Great Commission teaches. What God is after is people being born again, come to faith in Christ, to grow together as disciples of Christ in a body. 
And we can't abandon that. Your union with God is experienced. Have you ever thought that? That your union with God, the Almighty God, creator of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one who has redeemed you, your union with Him is experienced through your union with God's people. Uh, First John is very clear on that. Where Remember how there John says, Hey, you can say that you love God till you're blue in the face. But if you hate your brother, you're no more than a liar. You can't experience God apart from the people in his body as a believer. Have you ever thought about that? That in order to actually know God more fully, we need to be in a body together with each other. And that's how God has done from Abraham's time on. Sure, now you may have been hurt, and there is no guarantee that you won't be hurt again by other Christians. Right? There's no guarantee, and you shouldn't be seeking that guarantee because you yourself can't give that guarantee that you're never going to hurt somebody. But that's what it means to be part of a family. Isn't it? We need each other despite all the risks. We are not going to arrive at the end without each other. We are the main, main means that God uses to cause us to persevere to the end. And that goes along with this covenantal nature that is always dealing with a people through covenant. Any questions before we continue? All right. So, as Paul argues here in Ephesians 2, the, the opposite of whom we were without Christ is true about us in Christ. And we know that because of that but in verse 13. This is what you were. You were foreigners. You were outsiders. You were strangers. But now, in Christ Jesus, you're no longer any of those things. You are part of Israel. We are united to Christ rather than separated. We are citizens of Israel, the church of for whom Christ died, rather than aliens. We are heirs of the covenants of promise, rather than strangers to them. Remember what Paul says in Galatians 3? That if you are in Christ, you're what? You're Abraham's seed, according to the promise. And it's interesting that if you look at the Old Testament covenants, you're going to find all kinds of promises made. Right? They have a promise of land, promise of protection and so on. But yet Paul says that if Abraham's seed you are, if, if you're in Christ, you're Abraham's seed according to the promise, singular. And just earlier in the chapter, he already made a big deal about singular and plural, right? Seed, not seeds. But what is the promise? The singular promise, the thing that brings all that God promises together is, I will be your God and you're going to be my people. So the only way you have that promise upon you is if you are Abraham's seed, if you're a member of the covenant of Abraham. Are we with me so far? Now, you don't have to agree with me, but I hope that what I'm saying is making sense and that it's just going to cause you to wrestle with the idea for a little bit because what I'm saying makes a lot of logical sense. Now, you might, you might, might say like somebody else, Told me once, yeah, this is all makes sense, it's reasonable, it's logical, but God doesn't have to be logical. Um, does anybody remember what was one of the titles of Christ? Isn't he the word? The logos? Where do you think the word logic comes from? Just a side note. <laughs> Any questions before we continue? 
All right, the next thing I want us to see is that because of the new covenant is a further development of the Abrahamic covenant, it was made with Israel. You know, every Lord's Day, we have the Lord's Supper, and it's not with candy. It's just, you know, and we read 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul gives us the earliest and most detailed account of the institution of the Lord's Supper. And remember what Jesus says, this is, when he talks about the blood, what, this is the blood of what? Of the new covenant. Corinthians 11, 25. So, if we are going to be in a right relationship with God, we need to be part of the new covenant. And the new covenant is a development of the Abrahamic covenant. If we are not part of Israel, we have no part in the new covenant. But how can you say that? Well, read what the new covenant says. This is, this is the most... So Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 are the two places that the new covenant is more explicitly uh, elaborated. Je- uh, Ezekiel 36, when it talks about giving a heart of flesh, moving the heart of stone. And here in, in Jeremiah 31 is where it's actually labeled new covenant. Where there, this is God speaking to Jeremiah. And this is why he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant. Now, with whom is he going to make the new covenant? With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Those are the entities. What is that? That's the completion of Israel, right? Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. So with whom is he making the new covenant? With the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Therefore, in order to benefit from the new covenant, you have to be part of, of that. Not, verse 32, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant was the, that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And as I said, our Lord Jesus Christ says that, this, that his supper is a sign and seal of that new covenant. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, some might try to get around this necessity of being a member of Israel in order to participate in the promises of the New Covenant by saying that the New, Co- New Testament mentioned, when the New Testament talks about New Covenant, it's talking about something else than the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. That some, some say that when and they, they, um, they'll be labeled, they label themselves as New Covenant theology people. And they say that when the New Testament speaks about New Covenant, he's talking about a covenant that's never been mentioned before. Is not the one in Jeremiah 31. Therefore, the church has nothing to do with Israel. Right? And that no, a lot of people buy into that. Wayne Grudem is one of those people that said that. D.A. Carson also says that. These are major scholars in the evangelical world today. There's a big problem with that view, though. And that problem is called the Book of Hebrews. Would you just grab, we're not going to read the, the uh, just wanted to grab your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 8 for a second. This is a visual illustration. Hebrews 8. And if your Bible has headings, right before verse 7, you have a heading. If any of you has a heading, can you read that to me? The heading right before verse 7. A new covenant, right? Now, a lot of the Bibles, if it's a quote from the Old Testament, they will... um, Hebrews 8, 
they will uh, change the way that it's formatted. If you look at starting at verse 7, all the way to verse 12, what is, what is it that the, the author of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit, is referring to when he talks about the new covenant, a new covenant? Jeremiah 31. This is the longest contiguous quotation of the Old Testament in the Bible. It's Jeremiah 31. And then he develops that in the rest of chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11, saying that this is the basis of our salvation. Leading us to chapter 11, when he says this was the basis of the salvation of all these people that were saved by faith in the Old Testament. And now you're going to have the same faith of these people, and you're going to continue running the race toward Christ, who is the shepherd of the sheep, in, verse, in chapter 13, through what the blood of the everlasting covenant has brought us together. So, the inspired author of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ inaugurated that, that new covenant by his blood for all who believe. In, in, in um, chapter 9, verse 15, it says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So unless you're part of this new covenant, what is the new covenant? The very covenant that God promised in Jeremiah 31, made with Israel, unless you're part of that covenant, unless you're part of that people with whom the covenant was made, you have no hope of salvation. That, that's, now, it, we have a great God that saves even inconsistent people. So we were thankful for for that. But theologically, that's why he's teaching. Unless you're a member of the new covenant, which new covenant? The one promised to Israel? Then you have no part in Christ. Because he only came to save those that are part of the new covenant. Are you with me so far? So everyone who comes to faith in Christ is grafted into Israel and become members of the new covenant. Why is it important? Because now then we can look at we, we know how properly to understand the, the prophecies made in the Old Testament and New Testament regarding Israel, regarding the church, because they are a continuing body. Sure, there are differences, right? And the Bible tells us there are differences in the different administrations of the covenant of, of, with Abraham. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. The book of Hebrews tells us why, because Christ is being sacrificed for us. We... We don't worship in the temple anymore because Christ is our temple and He is everywhere, so we can worship Him everywhere. But the, the gist of it, of being a people to God and God being a, a God to us, is the same from the beginning all the way to eternity, as we read in Revelation 21 and 22. Any questions before we just one, one more thing and then we'll be done for today? Adam. If a Jew is going to be saved today, then he has to be saved just like you and I. Okay? But at the coming of Christ, usually they say, a true dispensation, that they will be saved through a reestablishing of the Mosaic Covenant. Which is different, right? And during that tribulation period then, only Jews will be saved. 
and is going to be doing it through the rebuilding of the temple and sacrifices. And so if you're a good Pharisee doing a tribulation, then you're going to heaven. Which you can see that this seems to disagree with the tone of Christ in, in the Gospels there. Okay, one last thing for today, and we should be done, is this. There is an impact in the, as we understand the future when we see the unity between Israel and the church. We see that the promises made to Abraham are for the church. Now, he is our God, and we are his people. He is the, a God to us and to our children. I haven't heard any dispensations try to deny that one. They like that one. Yes, God is our God, and we are his people. And he's a God to our children, and we we're going to raise them. Even though our theology doesn't back that up, we're going to raise them as they belong to God. We're even going to have dry cleaning ceremonies called uh, dedications uh, to make sure that, that our kids have some sort of union with, uh, with uh, Christ, but they don't have the theology to back back down, but it's, it's so in, uh, um, well, I guess we can use the word obvious, that's not the word I'm looking for, but it's, it's just within us to see that that's how God deals with, with his people that you can't deny. Because we're united to the church, to the land promises made to Abraham are also made to us. And that's something that uh, y'all, amillennialists, have to deal with. That those promises made to Abraham are also made to uh, the church. We're going to look at that a little more uh, lately, uh, not lately, later, in a different lesson. Um, but uh, one thing that's missed is the most postmillennial, most consistent postmillennialists also will, will see a land promise future to the church as well. Um, now, some people say that all the land promises are fulfilled, but if you look at the boundaries given to Abraham, that's never been the case. And then you come to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus uses land promises uh, language to say to expand beyond Palestine and says that now the meek, that is those that belong to him, will inherit what? The earth. Not just Palestine, but the earth there. Also, Hebrews 11 verse 13 says that Abraham died in faith without seeing the promises that had been made to him. So there are promises to Abraham still. In order to do that, those promises have to be realized at the resurrection when Abraham comes back to life so that those promises can be uh, realized. Now, whether God will do a work of revival among ethnic Israel is something that this view of the church allows for but doesn't require. It might be that, that uh, God still has some revival uh, for ethnic Israel uh, as some understand uh, Romans 13 and Romans 9, uh, and this, this view allows for that, doesn't require it, but allows, accommodates that. But if God does a work, uh, a special work of saving all ethnic Israel in the future, it will be through Jesus Christ, not through some sort of uh, obedience on their part, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Because as it has always been, reconciliation between man and God only happens by the grace of God through faith in the mediator of the covenant, independently from any of our works. So if Israel, if Israel is going to be massively saved in the future, the ethnic Israel is going to be through faith in Jesus Christ. So our great God has one bride and one bride only. The name of the bride is Israel, the church of the living God. That's, that's who she is. That's us. That's the saints that lived before the cross. That's the saints that continue to live from the cross to the coming of Jesus Christ. We have two minutes. Any questions before we close?
All right, so let's break together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for um, showing to us that you are a consistent, faithful, unchanging God, and that we can bank on that. We thank you for your promise to be a God to us, and that we are your people. We thank you, Father, that you don't change in that. And because of that, we can confidently come to Christ, knowing that he is God with us. And through him, we are saved. We pray that you prepare our hearts and minds to worship you this morning. Pray that your spirit be walking among us. For us in Jesus' name, amen.